Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. It does require removal a lot because mold grows into the material and you can't really just surface clean it because it's behind there. It's expanded to the studs that are behind the walls. It's kind of like you're looking at the tip of an iceberg. Stress is the inflammation that robs us of life, energy, and happiness. Our typical solutions for gut health and hormone balance have let a lot of us down. We're over-medicated and underserved. At The Less Stressed Life, we're a community of health-savvy women exploring solutions outside of our traditional Western medicine toolbox and training to raise the bar and change our stories. Each week, our hope is that you leave our sessions inspired to learn, grow, and share these stories to raise the bar in your life and home. Access to functional or specialized medicine testing and standard blood work is a big piece of personalizing care plans to help our clients succeed. But getting accounts with multiple labs and ordering and tracking results from many different web portals slows efficiency by bogging us down in admin work. This is why I'm completely obsessed with our podcast sponsor, Rupa Health. It's a single portal that allows you to order from over 20 specialty labs in one incredibly simple dashboard. I'm talking less than 30 seconds to set up your free account and about 30 seconds to order the labs you need. All the results are in one place and I can securely send clients their results with a click of a button. A big advantage for our clients is that standard blood work can be ordered for almost two thirds less than other direct to consumer lab sites. Rupa is a lab concierge, so they send the lab invoices on your behalf if a client pays for their own labs. They help them get set up with a lab draw, navigate testing questions, and they provide the requisition forms. It's literally a dream. Go sign up for free to help streamline your practice and simplify ordering labs for your clients at rupahealth.com. That's R-U-P-A health.com and let them know I sent you when you sign up. You can also check out the show notes for this episode for a short video walkthrough of how I use Rupa Health in my own practice. All right. Today on the Lester Slide, we have Brian Carr, who is, I don't know if we call it mold finders. He's a second generation indoor environmental consultant who specializes in working with hypersensitive individuals with complex medical conditions. He helps them understand if mold mycotoxins and other indoor pathogens exist in their homes that might be contributing to their health conditions and how to remedy those issues. He's become a gold go-to mold and biotoxin resource for many medical providers across the country and has helped over 3000 hypersensitive individuals nationwide create a healthier living environment that has allowed their doctors to help them get better. 
He's co-founder of We Inspect, a national, and we just talked about this off air. He really does go everywhere. National indoor environmental assessment company specializing in mold and biotoxin detection and management for hypersensitive individuals. He's got a lot of other stuff. He's got like an army interpretation guide, a mold method. So we'll talk about, we can talk about all that at the end, but let's jump in. Welcome, Brian. Thanks. It's a lot of stuff. <laughs> a lot of stuff. <laughs> a lot, a lot of stuff. stuff to, we're just going to be like, all right. Rapid fire here, Brian. Let's talk about mold. Mold is super yeah, right? freaking annoying. Super <laughs> annoying. Totally what you wanted to be when you grew up was a mold inspector. And actually, it sounds like you got that this was a gift in your family, maybe. And so how does a person... So this will fit into your story. Like, How do you know if you've got someone who's worth a darn for inspections? Like, What are proper credentials and what's your background overall? I would say. It's funny. I just want to, it's funny. I went on an IG rant about this this morning about somebody asked like, well, how do I know if there's somebody good that we can find? And it's like, listen, it's, it's hard. You have to like know a series of questions and like understand how they're doing. I always say, I was like, honestly, instead of finding someone locally, like talk to us, we'll come and do it. Cause I know that we know how to do it, you know, but, but the, the thing is like, you have to understand how they're going through the house and how people have been trained historically, like these mold inspectors and what they do. The old methods, even the current certification models, they're all like referencing sort of antiquated processes and different things in order to even get your certification behind your name, right? So like, just because you have a certification doesn't necessarily mean that you go through a house the right way. A lot of these folks, they come in and they don't actually look for where the problem is coming from. Instead, they come and they talk about doing like air quality testing. Like they'll put an air sampling pump in the middle of a room and they'll rely on that to tell them everything that's happening in the house. And it just doesn't work that way. So I'd say like the big thing that you need to understand, how long are they going to spend at the house, right? If they're going to be in and out in like an hour, they're not doing a good job. They should be at a house. Even if it's a small place, you're talking like a 2000 square foot place. You should be there like four hours, at least, if not longer. You're looking at every baseboard, every room, every cabinet and the crawl space in the basement, in the attic, you're opening the heating and air conditioning system. You're like in everything looking for where it's coming from. And if they're not doing that, then you're wasting your money because you can't fix the problem if you don't know where it's coming from. That's like the whole beginning source. Same thing with, with health and medicine, right? It's like understand source problem before you can fix it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's talk about where some common places are to see mold. And then what about the less common places to see mold? Give us a list. Yeah. So here's the thing. Mold needs water to grow. Right. So like very easily, we can start mentally checking, well, where's all the known water that we have in the house? Think underneath every single sink, your bathrooms, you know, the kitchens, the laundry area, you know, where your water heater is, like these different places. Almost every single thing that we find in a house has to do with some sort of internal water issue that created it. Very rarely is it, oh, I live in Florida and because of the humidity, there's mold all over my house. So rare that that's the case. Usually the problem is because there's internal leaks or water issues or something that caused a problem, which is why you could have issues in Las Vegas and Arizona the same way that you can have places issues in like Louisiana and Florida, right? It has nothing to do really with where you live. Now, so I like take a step back underneath every sink, almost every single house I go into, at least one sink cabinet has a mold issue in it. Every single one. There's products that leak. Products are made primarily of water. Yes, there's other things in them, but the core ingredients, water. Products leak, pipes leak, things or whatever, whatever. Next thing you know, you got little bits of water damage on your cabinet. It doesn't look like there's visible mold there because there isn't, but the moisture has soaked in and created a mold problem that's hidden on the underside of the cabinet. So one quick thing, literally everybody could do, go through your whole house, take everything out 
of all of your sink cabinets and look in there. And if anything is not uniform, right? If it's not smooth, if it's stained, if it's bubbled, if it's whatever, then we know that there's a good chance that there's a mold problem under that spot. Other really common places, baseboards by showers, baseboards behind toilets, you know, the areas by washing machines and stuff. These are super, super common places to see things. All right. How about less common places that you are more surprised to see mold issues? And when I think before you answer that, I remember a client telling me about having black mold in her closet. And I think about that and I think, well, then what was on the other side of the closet wall, right? Or what was above it or below it for other moisture potential is the first thing I think of when you just told me about common places and it's normally going to be related to internal water. So anything you need to say about that, but but that was where my mind was thinking when I was thinking about, oh, okay, if it's got to be attached to water more often, because we always think about these humid places being so like Pacific Northwest and Georgia area. I always feel like super mold driven or like the environment is really mold driven, but you're saying, hey, could be anywhere, could be anywhere that is associated with water. So anything to add to that and then less common places or places where you're more surprised to see mold. Yeah. I mean, I really don't see a huge difference in parts of the country, right? Like, yes, if you're in a humid place and you're not managing your humidity in your house at all, then if the humidity peaks up to like 55, 60%, you could get mold that grows on surfaces, right? So that's like the one caveat that could happen. But most houses don't get to that point because you're running your air conditioning, you're running your heating, and that's kind of naturally managing your humidity in your house. So that's the, that kind of handles that. So less common places. I'm going to put like a little twist on this. It's not that it's less common. It's that we don't ever look at them. And so I call them shadow sources. You know, these places in your house that you never see, but they actually can be really big problems. Crawl space, basement, attic, heating, air conditioning system. Those are places no one ever goes into. When you think about a basement and a crawl space, those areas are below ground right? They're under your house. If water falls, right? You have, which could be rain, which could be sprinklers, which could be whatever. It gets in the ground. It's going to soak down. Gravity brings it down and it can get into the crawl space in the basement. You never go down there. You're never going to know that this is a problem. The thing that magnifies this effect is something called the stack effect, which basically says that the airflow in your house goes from bottom of your house and pushes upward. So the true bottom of your house is your basement or your crawl space. Like your house doesn't know that you don't live there. As far as your house is concerned, you hang out in there and play video games. You put your kid down there and to go to sleep. Like it doesn't know any better, right? So that's where all the airflow goes up. So if you have water that's getting into your crawl space or your basement, you have no idea that it's happening and you create a mold or a bacteria problem in that basement, it's going to have a massive impact on what's going on through the house. Then you gave an example of like a closet that randomly had mold. My first question is if it's downstairs, or a crawl space or a basement underneath there, because probably what's happening is it's pushing up in the closet, closet door is shut, air stagnating in there, and bam, you start getting mold growing all over your clothes and the walls and all that stuff. And nobody, they're like, there's no water source here. Well, there's a water source immediately under it and it's like penetrating up. Does that make sense? Yeah. What did you call that effect? You had done oh, something. the stack effect. It's oh, okay. called the stack effect. Got it. And that's why we have these air returns, right? Isn't it? Like in along this... But am I making this up? This is why I have this vents in my house. I feel like it's like, I don't know what the purpose they, I think that's what it's called in air return. Like in the crawl space where you have vent or the basement where there's vents just kind of like open in there. Is that what you're talking about? It's actually upstairs and there, like it goes nowhere. It's just an open vent to the basement. I feel like, yeah. So I guess it is in the basement and up. Yeah. I mean, there's depending on when your house was built, there's different standards, you know, on, on how you did things. The newer homes now are actually getting built more for energy efficiency. 
And doing that, you're tightening up and sealing the house up a lot, which is actually really problematic from a mold point of view because it can't breathe anymore. So there's kind of like pros and cons of looking newer versus older. But unless you're physically like changing the airflow pattern in your house, meaning that you have some sort of system come in and you're changing the direction of air moving, then you're going to have the sack effect. It's just kind of the standard flow of air. Mm-hmm. And one thing I want to underline is it doesn't really matter if your house is new or old for the possibility to have mold issues. Absolutely. There's pros and cons to each, right? The older the house, the more history the house has, the more potential leaks that could have happened and the more things that didn't get handled the right way, right? Like if I tell people like doing a 1950s house tomorrow, like part of the conversation will be, well, you know, this house was built in the 50s. So imagine in 1972, there was a big flood somewhere in this house. And what was the standard in 1972 to fix this? It was just come in here and just kind of patch it up because they didn't know any better right? That's now the history of this house and whatever was created there, if it wasn't properly removed, it's still there. It doesn't go anywhere. And so that's the downside to older houses, but new houses have their own thing too. So some of these are client or listener questions that have come up recently that I wrote down for when we got to chat about these. How do you know? So you know, you were just talking about basements being underground. And I believe that it's common and maybe not, but I think it's common for external walls to have, I don't know if we call it moisture resistant sheetrock, mold resistant sheetrock, you probably know. So if you have mold and moisture resistant sheetrock and you have something coming in and you can maybe see a little water damage down, but you really see it on that trim. Does the trim need to be replaced? Does the whole sheetrock need to be replaced? Obviously, this is going to depend on like the testing tools you use. And I want to talk about those next. But these are just kind of questions that came up. And since we're talking about the basement, this makes the most sense. Like, how do you know? Does everything and this is why mold like gets to be kind of an ugly topic? It's like I associate it in my brain with ripping a lot of things apart and it being expensive for walls. So how do you really know? You really know from testing is how you really know, right? The same way if you're, you know, have a health condition, you think you have it, but the only way you really know you have it, right? There's symptoms that line up, but then you test for it to like validate it, right? The same thing happens on our end. I mean, thing is, if you're seeing water staining, I don't care what magic like building material someone's telling you that is like waterproof and moldproof or whatever. I've seen mold grow on all kinds of stuff. Say mold can't grow on metal. You know what? It does. It can't, you know, because the thing is, is that you have to think when people talk about this stuff, when companies do all this stuff, they're talking about these materials in like this lab setting where it's like this clean room and you have this one item with no other external influence on this one thing. And in that case, it's maybe moisture resistant, right? Here's the thing though, when you get behind wall cavities, there's dirt, there's dust, there's crap back there. It's gross back there. If you ever open a wall, it's disgusting. There's insulation back there. There's whatever's going on back there. Mold can grow all over that stuff. Right. So to think that like the one piece and then you have them selling you, oh, mold can't grow back here because of this magic drywall thing that's going on in a lab, maybe, but we don't live in a lab. There's so many other influences that come in and we have to like think of it that way. And I think sometimes we kind of get caught up in like the hype of the pitch on stuff like that. And you're right, removing things, it does require removal a lot because mold grows into the material And you can't really just surface clean it because it's behind there. It's expanded to the studs that are behind the walls. It's kind of like you're looking at the tip of an iceberg. And if you chop the iceberg off at the, at water level and the Titanic was still floating down and the tip was never there, the boat would have still sunk because it still would have hit the iceberg underneath. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the idea. All right. Another question on this topic before we kind of go talking about how to appropriately like different helpful tools or testing tools that you use. 
someone asked about mold and grout. Another tricky part to like pull out because how do you tell if you ever get it out if it looks like it stains the grout? So it's hard to tell. That was a question I got this morning. Grout's tough. We test grout whenever we see it, if there's mold in it to kind of see like how much there is and what types there is. If we test grout and it's not like terrible, then we'll say, hey, listen, let's try this. Let's try to clean it. And then let's try to make sure that we're not letting water sit on it anymore. So you're in a shower, let's say. So after your shower, you squeegee the walls down to the ground. You squeegee the ground down to the drain. You get all the water out of there. Because what happens with grout is it deteriorates over time because water just eats it away, right? So grout's not a forever thing. So if you're taking out the water that ends up doing that, right, then you're extending the life cycle or the lifespan of the grout, ideally. So clean it as best as you can dry everything out. If you start noticing that it looks bad again, then you probably have a bigger problem behind the tile of the shower, under the ground of the shower, whatever. It's probably a bigger issue that's going on. Additionally, like if we're in the house, we'll be doing moisture readings in those areas too, to see if there is trap moisture behind the wall. And if there is, then we're like, okay, listen, this isn't just like a grout thing. Like there's water back behind the tile here. So that's a bigger problem that when you pull the shower, there's probably going to be a lot more going on back there. Well, that leads exactly into my next question. So I want to talk about some helpful tools. I presume that you use an ERMI, but you just talked about moisture meters. So mm-hmm. I want to know about the utility or how helpful is a moisture meter when trying to determine whether you might have a problem where you need to bring in an inspector. Cause that's really kind of like, there's gotta be some screening that happens as a person before you can go through the effort of bringing in an inspector to determine, you know, that professional level. So moisture meters, how helpful is that? They are. I don't know if that would be the thing that I use as a determinant to bring someone in though. Mm-hmm, right. Sure. I mean, it's great. You have a moisture meter. You can go around your the bases of your toilet in the shower walls under the windows. You could do that stuff. That's stuff you know that we would be doing too. If you see there's moisture somewhere, then you know, oh man, there's maybe a leak here. So that might mean that there maybe there's a mold problem here, right? That's kind of how you put it together. The easier sort of screening tool thing though really is looking and and doing something like an ERMI first, if you're trying to kind of like slow step into deciding if you need to get into it. The reason is that, so what ERMI is for those that don't know, it's basically like this fancy phrase for DNA formatting of the molds that are present in a house. So like when you do an air sample in the middle of the room, all that you're able to pick up are what are called spores. I think most people are familiar with that term, like spores for mold. So basically mold colonies release these spores off. The spores are basically seeds that if they go somewhere else and it's wet, they can grow over there. That's how it kind of thrives and grows and and colonizes. Spores are a problem, right? The challenge with doing an air test though, is that an air test is a snapshot in time. You're running that sample for like five minutes. You're running it in the middle of a room right up in the air. If I walked in that room 20 minutes later and jumped all over the place and rattled all the curtains and jumped in, you know, on the carpet and stuff, that sample would probably come up different than it would if I walked into this room that hadn't been stepped into for a week and put an air pump in the room and sampled it. They're so variable in what it looks like that they give you a lot of false negatives, a lot of false negatives. We actually don't even use them for ambient testing for that very reason, because if somebody sees that an air test looks negative, then in their mind, they're going to think, oh, that's the air that's floating around. There's nothing going on here. And it can almost be more problematic. It's, it's almost like dangerous information for someone because of how they might interpret it. So instead of doing that, we do dust collection testing. So ERMI is one type of dust collection sample that you can do. 
The reason we do it is one, you're getting a much more historical point of view of what's gone on, right? This is dust that's settled. This stuff could have been settled down on the surfaces for months or year or something like that. The reason that's important, because someone would be like, well, why do I care if it's been sitting there for a year? There's this thing that's called the personal cloud effect. And basically what it says is like, as you walk around your house, you're constantly popping up all these particles up in your breathing zone just from normal human activity. So I use this analogy a lot for anybody who watched Charlie Brown as a kid. There was the one super dirty kid that just had the cloud of dirt around him all the time, everywhere that he went. Like that actually happens to us as we walk through our house, except you can't see it. And what's popping up, there's literally this invisible cloud of this stuff. And it's all these little particles that are floating around. You sit on your chair, you bump your desk, whatever. It's all up in your breathing zone. The dust level sampling then gives us a much more accurate view of what exposure looks like, because we know that's getting repopulated up in your breathing zone on a continual basis. The other benefit of doing dust sampling is that it actually allows us to use this more DNA formatting technology, which is called MSQPCR. That's the kind of basis of ERMI to understand down to the species level of what is happening in terms of what mold might be present. But more importantly than like what the species are, because I feel like that's overplayed a little bit and not nearly as important as some people think that it is. It's the amount of fragment from the colony that it picks up. So spores are just one piece of a mold colony. But if you think of like a mole colony, like a tree, let's imagine that the leaves are the spores on the tree, but the tree still has leaves and bark and roots and a trunk and all these other components of it, right? Those break off of the mole colony too. It's not just the spore. And there's studies out there that show that those fragments can be up in magnitude of 500 times the amount of spores that it actually releases. So the overall load coming off the colony is going to be much higher on the fragment side than it's going to be on the spore side. Those fragments are also way smaller than spores, which means they could bypass our body's natural filtering system. Our nose and our throat are all meant to protect our lungs. There's sort of this filter system built in play. These particles are so small, they work right through that, get in the lungs, pop in the bloodstream, and bam, you have chronic inflammation. So being able to understand the more the overall fragment load and the historical sense of it is why ERMI is so cool for the screening test. The ERMI score that is the scoring system attached to the ERMI is completely flawed and pretty useless. But the underlying technology for it is helpful to get the overall loads. And then, you know, that ties into why we created this new ERMI interpretation tool to get a more, you know, accurate look at what that actually means. So with the ERMI, you go around and you take dust samples, but what about the carpet, which is like, feels like a beautiful place for mold to hang out underneath that pad and the dust and all that stuff. Yeah. Sample that. Well, you could sample carpet specifically if you really wanted to. The thing is, if we think about if you have particles floating around, dust is going to settle down. It's going to settle into the carpet. So if you're doing a composite, which is just a collection from multiple rooms, a dust collection from multiple rooms throughout the house, you're getting an understanding of what's settling into the carpeting fibers. We don't usually test carpet separate because we could tell from everything else what the load is that's getting into the carpet and in turn, like what we need to do to handle that. If you wanted to test carpet separate... You could pull up the edges and look at the carpet tacks around that they nail into and see if there's any mold or water damage on those wood little carpet tacks with the nails that stick up into the bottom of the carpet. You could do like vacuum dust testing specific from the carpet, but I kind of feel like it's a waste of money to do it that way. If you go around and and you're able to do this ERMI and collect it from all the different rooms, you understand what's settling in the carpet and that's going to go ahead and drive a lot of the decisions for you. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. You brought up air testing and we're talking about kind of 
some screening tools before we do a full on like inspection. So I think it's Dr. Krill, Jill Krista that talks about the mold plates that are out there. These are a really inexpensive tool technically. And this is what she says. If they're positive, you have a problem. If they're negative, don't rule out that you still have a problem, which is kind of what you just said, because exactly. it's just looking at air quality with those spores, but there's tons of other, there's like a lot of other stuff that could be an issue. So like if it's a present problem in those plates, it's already a problem. So cool. It's time to move on at that point. But if it's negative, you're not done. Is that fair? Is that fair for a, for a screening tool or do you just hate those <laughs> plates in general? Or what are you thinking? I actually completely hate them. She's right. I would add on to what she says though. If they're positive, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a big problem either. There's always spores floating around. There's always going to be stuff comes in from the outside or whatever. So if you stick a mold plate in a room somewhere and something grows on the mold plate, it could have been a spore that's just floating around. That's kind of like a normal external to internal thing. So it's hard to say when you look at this, oh, it looks gross, right? When you have any, see these things or, oh man, this is terrible. Does it really mean that there's this big problem? Not necessarily. The thing to keep in mind about these agar plates, these mold plates the gel stuff in it is the food source for the mold to grow on. Different molds, it's called agar, that stuff. Mm-hmm. Different molds will grow on different agar. So you could put out a plate that's kind of more suitable for certain mold types to grow on it. And let's say other mold types fell on and it didn't grow, right? And then you're like, it doesn't mean that there's not a problem. So she's right on that scent. I would even venture to say, even if stuff does grow on it, it's not necessarily like a hard, massive problem kind of deal either. I just kind of think they're kind of worthless. What I think I just heard you say, and this is what my guess would be, is there anywhere that's ever mold free, technically, or just some like, because you just said there's always spores floating. Yeah. You're never going to have a net zero mold house. It doesn't exist, right? The idea is that if there is mold in the house, it's more of your natural from, you know, outdoor to indoor settlement that's happening. And you don't have internal sources that are growing in the house. So the goal is to get rid of any of these internal factories that are creating all of these problems, which build up and build up and add up over time and get to the point where you're just dealing with normal kind of in and out from being alive. And at that point, you bring in air filtration units, you can help manage that and you can really help lower the overall load. But those units are not meant to fix like source problems, right? So you got to handle the source stuff, get everything cleaned up. And then you bring in air filtration units to handle the, hey, I went to this, you know, next time you're in CVS, look up at the ceiling and see how much mold is around the air conditioning vents and how many water damaged ceiling tiles there are. Like this just happens everywhere. So like you walk in all these stores and stuff, you're going to bring stuff back in the house with you, you know? So yeah, you're never going to be net zero. You just don't want the sources to be internal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. You can bring in sources and kind of have problems. I've read some different stories. If you bring in books from an old moldy basement into your home, you just brought in a full colony. That's like a lot of stuff potentially, right? But I don't know if it maybe quite a... Okay. Yeah, exactly. Maybe. You brought in probably a lot of fragments that were there. And if mycotoxins were part of the growth structure, whatever was happening in the house is settled on the books. So you might've brought that in. If there's visible mold on the books, that's the colonies, right? The colonies is the actual growth, but the colonies, they spread stuff everywhere. So that's why you walk into a house and you can have an army that looks terrible and not see mold anywhere is because what's happening is the sources are all hidden. It's all kind of penetrating into the main living space and the fragments and the particles from that is settling on stuff. And that's what you're picking up. So it's kind of indicative of sort of what's happening around. But yeah, when you bring in books, you know, they get contaminated very easily. And for some people, if you had stuff that was in a bad environment, bring it in, it's still going to trigger you. 
Are there any good screening tools prior to inspection that are going to lead you to say, I should go inspect? I think we just settled on ERMI, right? ERMI's great. So ERMI's great. And then running it through what we just created called the ERMI code gives you a really good sense of how many sources you can expect to find on average in a house that looks like yours. That's the big difference between like the ERMI score and and what we just put out called the ERMI code. The ERMI score doesn't really give you any context really for what it means for your place. Whereas what we just tried to, what we just put out and released takes all of our inspection data over the last three years and combines it and looks at the ERMIs that were in those houses, but then looks at how many sources did we find? Was there toxins in that house? Was there not? And it's creating more of a, you know, trying to answer the questions that we really have when we run an ERMI, which is how bad is my house really? How does it compare to other people's houses, right? Am I worse? Am I better? which ultimately leads to the question of like, should I be looking to move or not move, right? That's really what people are trying to figure out. So we tried to sort of look at all of our data and give more actionable sort of house specific data on that versus like a large overview. But that's the first step. The screening, that's the first screening step. The other thing you do besides that is like, listen, if you sit down and say, let me think through the history of my house. I've had a flood. I've had a leak under the sink. I've had this. I've had that. I've had that. I've had that. I mean, if you're naming five water events that you've had at your house off the top of your head, you probably have a mold problem in your house. You probably need to have everything looked at. What if you're moving into a new place, a house, apartment, whatever? What's your advice to people to help safeguard themselves from mold when they're moving in? Because you just said something important. People are trying to determine if they can move. And there are people like I would never be in a moving position for me, maybe, but like there are just certain situations where it's like, nope, I'm planted right here because of the certain sure. things that are here. But if people are moving, someone else is going to move into that space. <laughs> so like, this is a, just a recycling problem, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So how does someone, if they're thinking about moving into a place, you know, and this isn't on the top checklist, right? You know, unless they walk in and they smell something, right? Or they see something. But what's your advice to people so they can stay safe when they're looking at moving somewhere? The key is to know what to look for and where to look for it. And I know that sounds like, oh, that sounds great, Brian. Like we aren't you. But that's the thing. Like there are times where I've gone in with clients in new houses that they were looking into, just walked around. It's like, nope, time to go. Right. And they had no idea. But the thing is, really what we're trying to understand is, has there been, are there signs of water damage here? It's called the five signs of hidden mold growth. It's basically five signs of water damage. It's staining, it's buckling or separating. Uh, it's cracking or peeling. I'm going to try to call these off on top of my head. It's bubbling like paint and then like rust or like efflorescence, like, like mineral deposits. Those are the five things. It's literally the only five things you need to look for in a house. And you go through and you look for these things and, and, you know, in certain places. And you can know before you even get down the road if this place is going to be good or very bad, I should say. And here's the thing is that the odor can't be the key because odor means actively growing right now. That's what odor means. But you could have had issues that started five, 10 years ago and the residual is all still there. No odor because it's not currently growing and you could end up in a really bad place. So we created this as another thing to try to help people in this situation. We created this program called Mole Finders Method, which breaks out those two pieces, the five things to look for. And then in every room of the house, I basically wrote out, here's where you look in this room. Look here, look here, look here, look here, look here. Look for these five things. If you could kind of paint by numbers, then you can go through a house and look at something and does it look like one of these five pictures here? And if you can do that, you can avoid so many of these places before you get too deep, right? You buy a house or whatever, all of a sudden you figure all this stuff out and it wasn't any better than where you were before. So this is like how I go when we were looking to rent our house. I had my wife distract the realtor and I went through no moisture meters, 
no anything. A flashlight that was the size that could fit into my pocket and no fancy tools and no infrared cameras and none of that stuff and opened the sink cabinets and looked in the bathrooms and the baseboards, all these kinds of things that we were talking about, the easy stuff you can look at with a flashlight and immediately know if we're in a house that has massive problems or not. And so anyone can do that. They just have to know what those things are to look for. That's what Mulfinder's method is. Perfect. Well, we covered quite a bit. We talked about screening tools. I think the only other thing I want to just clarify that I don't think we were super clear about before we find out where people can find you online would be you just said something kind of important that was you may have had a past problem, but it's not currently growing. So I think one, you don't have to see the mold for it to be a problem. Two, mm-hmm. mold, like visible, like actual mold gives off lots of mycotoxins. And if it runs out of food or growth medium, it may not be growing. Is that correct? But it still could have mycotoxins. Like, is there, does this lay dormant? Or like, if it's not growing, is it, does it look differently? Does it still look like mold? Is there anything to say about that? I guess. Yeah. If it's not growing, kind of two things. If it's growing, that means the water source is there. If the water source is there, it's actively eating and doing its thing. So it's still releasing gases. That's the odor. That's the smell. It can still be creating mycotoxins because the factory is in operation, right? Because the water there and it's growing and it can still be releasing spores. So in growth mode, all of those three things can be happening. When the water goes away, it's like you just sent all the the workers at the factory home, but the factory is still there, right? That's kind of like what the difference is. Now, what happens when a mole colony dries out is think of like a flower. Like if you ever got a flower or gave a flower to somebody, when you first give it to them, it's super healthy. You could tug on the leaves and the petals and stuff. It doesn't fall off. And then when that flower starts to dry out, you're like hanging upside down on the wall because it's going to start wilting and breaking, right? Because it's, it's losing the integrity of the structure. So you hang it on the wall to kind of maintain its look. But if you go and touch that flower afterwards and just grab it, let's say, the whole thing is just going to crumble up in your hand a million little pieces and fall all over the place. That's the problem with mole colonies that dried out. So while they're not actively creating mycotoxins or the gases or actively releasing spores anymore, imagine that tree I just mentioned like a little while ago. And imagine a gust of wind comes by and blows that tree into a bajillion, many, many tiny pieces everywhere. That's what happens with old colonies. That's why historical stuff is so, so, so important. They can actually impact the house more than something that's growing right now because the entire thing can break apart. And all those little fragments we talked about that get into our lungs and move around, they increase the airflow and the load around the house. So those are kind of the two different things. That's why source removal is so important. You can't just say, we killed it, water went away and think that the problem is gone because in some ways it could be worse. Thanks for bringing your A game for the analogies today, Brian. No worries. It's kind of my thing. (laughs) I love love making some good analogies. All right. What I took from that is odor means it's still growing. That was like one thing I didn't want to forget because I think people will say sometimes they walk into a place and they smell this. And and so anyway, just kind of like re-listening to this episode to pull out those pieces would be great. Where's the best place for people to find you online? Yeah. So my inspection company, we're called We Inspect. We are nationwide, literally nationwide. We travel everywhere. Telling Chris earlier, we go to the sticks in the middle of everywhere. It doesn't matter. I'll believe Um, it when I see it. Just kidding. (laughs) We've been to South Dakota. We were probably down the street. didn't even know. So our website for that is yesweinspect.com. So if you're interested in having an inspection, you can go there. The ERMI interpretation tool I did, which again, is, or I was talking about, is an easy kind of entry road in. It's called the ERMI code, ermicode.com. All you do is take your ERMI, enter in the information from your ERMI, and it gives you the breakdown of those different things that I talked about. And then the other thing I, that we talked about was Moldfinders Method. That's moldfindersmethod.com. Very easy websites. And uh, that's the training program. If you want to go through and start vetting houses on your own and trying to get a feel of not getting into a bad place. And that teaches you exactly how I teach my consultants 
to go through home. So it's, it's I literally our training curriculum is in that for you guys. And so maybe if you go through that, you can then the next step is becoming Brian's consultant. See, there you go. We're looking. <laughs> sure you are. Sure you are. We could use more of you. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Sharing and reviewing this podcast is the best way to help us succeed with our mission to help integrate the best of East and West and empower you to raise the bar on your health story. Just go to reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. That's reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. And you'll be taken directly to a page where you can insert your review and hit post.